Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Coinbase Prime and Ledger. Love these companies. Genuinely proud to call them sponsors of the show. You're going to be hearing all about them later from me. But now on with the program. Don't fight the Fed. The bond market is absolutely betting against the Fed. Even now, we're actively betting against this entire monetary paradigm because we know it's completely false and wrong. Bitcoin is a wonderful solution as many monetary inventions of the past were. It's going to be it's going to make a difference in the future. I'm sure of it. And in a couple of generations thereafter, we're going to mess it up again. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by two uh, of my uh, very esteemed guests. I've got Emil uh, Kalinowski, who is new to On the Margin, and Jeff Snyder, uh, who is going to be, I'll call you an all-star, Jeff, and on the margin all-star. Um, and this is the Eurodollar University on the margin crossover uh, that we all knew we needed and was coming at some point. But guys, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Michael. It's a pleasure. Yeah, all-star. I don't know. That's that's quite the honor. I, I, I don't know what to say. You left me speechless here, as Neil does to me many, many times during our own show. And I, you're right. This is. I think this is a crossover we didn't know we needed. But now that we know we need it, we definitely need it. Absolutely. Um, so let's get right into it. So I'm going to set you up with this question. Um, I, the question that I want to ask you guys, and I feel like I might know the answer, but are central banks as important as we all think that they are? I'll, I'll set it up kind of up because there's this one narrative of don't fight the Fed, right? Don't go against the power of the almighty Fed and central banks. If you do, it's a losing proposition. I've already got a timeout for those of you not on the video from Emil, uh, but that's one kind of narrative. Jeff and Emil, I feel like you guys might feel a little differently. Talk to me. Do you agree with that sentiment? And if not, why? Jeff, let me answer, let me just set you up because I bet Michael is not going to be expecting this answer. You're going to say, yes, central banks are very important. We need someone to step in to be the uh, last resort, someone who's focused on currency elasticity, identifying, defining, measuring, mapping money and the distribution of money. Very, very important. Yes, we need central banks. Alas, the Federal Reserve is not a central bank. I love the way you did that because that's absolutely right. We do need central banks. We do need elasticity. We need something to stand about outside the system and say, look, things are going wrong. Let's step in. We need somebody who has the ability to print money or at least, you know, issue some form of monetary useful token. Uh, that's just not the Federal Reserve. <laughs> that's not the ECB. It's not the Bank of Japan. They do something completely different. So to flip your, your question on its head, Michael, yes, we believe that central banks are important, but we also understand why the public thinks that's the Fed, because that's really what they've been told ever since the first time they ever heard of the Federal Reserve. It's, it's reinforced in the financial media and every single news article, news story, whatever. Uh, it's over and over. You hear the Federal Reserve is a central bank. It prints money, does all these things. So you can understand why people will be confused because the central bank is important and they think the Fed is one. Therefore, transitive property, the Fed must be all important. And also, Michael, we think, and we bring this up on our show all the time, is when we think about money, we think about what's in our wallet, right? The, mm. the green dollars or the colorful paper in Europe and, and elsewhere. And we think, well, that's what the Federal Reserve or central banks do. They create that money. But as we bring up on the show, often, very often, starting in the mid-1950s or so, private banks took over. It's hard to believe. It's very hard to believe. But private banks took over. They started creating the vast majority of credit collateral money that the world runs on. The global economy functions on this. And Jeff can go into details as to the, each of the milestones along the way. But basically, uh, sometime in 2007, 2008, 2009, these private banks decided, you know what, it's too risky to continue what we've been doing. And we're going to take a little break. And uh, why don't you step in, Central Bank? Except by this point, the Central Bank had been a generation or two or three out of the business of creating, defining, identifying money that's useful. They do create a kind of money that I call a laundromat token, and that gets a lot of publicity. You know, it's Emil, you, you raise an important point, too, that I think you're right. Most the public's perception of money is those funny looking pieces of paper in their pocket. But you go back in time in, in uh, academic scholarship and central bank scholarship, I mean, I'm talking the 30s and 40s, 
And they said, you know, hand-to-hand -hand currency was such a small part of the economy. We're talking the 30s and 40s that they stopped really paying attention to printed currency as a form of useful money, at least a form of useful money that the Federal Reserve needed to pay attention to. So this transformation into bank-centered money started long, long, long time ago to the point that, you know, printed physical currency really doesn't have much of a role in any modern economy. It hasn't in a very long time. Of course, that obviously raises the question, well, if physical currency isn't really important in any economic setting, what the hell is money in the modern world? So two, two important points, and let me try to summarize. This is always dangerous, especially when it comes to Jeff, but I'm going to try to summarize uh, what you guys are saying here, which is you do need some elasticity function when it comes to currency. Money should serve the economy and not the other way around. But everyone thinks that that's the role of central banks like the Federal Reserve. But what you two guys are saying is actually money creation really occurs within the commercial banking system. So you actually kind of have this distributed system that acts as a central, banks and uh, central bank and performs that necessary function of elasticizing the money supply? Is that a word? I don't know. Is that an it accurate summary of what you guys we'll are call, saying? We'll call Michael's <laughs> contribution to the, the, the modern money scholarship. We're elasticizing words as well as currency. I love it. We need some flexibility, right, when it comes to this. <laughs> exactly. um, okay, so help me understand then because uh, – you know, to put it kind of simply, there's all these memes, right? You see these money printer go burr. You know, I, I've seen uh, Federal Reserve Bank governors come on 60 Minutes, right? And talk about how we're just changing uh, the amount of money in the ledger, right? So if they really aren't as in charge of this elasticity function, why do they pretend like they are? Why do we all think that? Well, yeah, there's two parts to this, right? And I think Michael hit both of them. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. I think the first part is what is the Fed actually does? And nobody, I mean, people don't spend much time thinking about it because why would you? I mean, Ben Bernanke in his famous, famous November 2002 uh, speech said, we have this thing called the printing press. And if we ever decide to use it, oh, look, look out. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be terrific. So, you know, we don't really think much about what the Federal Reserve does because printing press, end of story, end of, end of, end of conversation. But that's not really what the Fed does. The Fed does these asset-based uh, uh, purchasing activities, large-scale asset purchases, LSAPs, quantitative easing, one form of one, which essentially swaps what's called a bank reserve for an asset that a commercial bank holds. And we think a bank reserve, I mean, it sounds like money. It sounds like it should be money, but in truth, it's not. As Emil just said, you know, I love the way he always calls it this laundromat token. It's supposed it has some limited monetary use. It, de it definitely has some statutory uses for commercial banks. But as far as money in the real economy, not so much because neither you nor I nor anyone else can have can hold or possess or use a bank reserve. We can't walk into a grocery store and say, hey, I have some bank reserves and come out of it with any kind of product. You, you'd probably be arrested and put in jail for trying to counterfeit or at least, you know, maybe it's, uh, trying to rob the place because bank reserves have a technical interbank function that's very narrow and very limited. So when we say the Fed prints money, no, not really. The Fed prints bank reserves, which is a completely different thing. Now, getting back to what Emil also said was, what, are the Federal, what does Federal Reserve actually do or any modern central bank actually do that is not a central bank? And it gets back to what this euro dollar stuff is really about, which is monetary and banking evolution a long time ago, that in the 60, excuse me, 60s and 70s, central bankers realized and economists, they all realized we can't keep up with this bank-centered money because it's changing so rapidly at such great pace that we don't even really know what banks are doing and they're not really telling us what they're doing either. So we have to make a decision here. Do we operate monetary policy based on the way a central bank should, which is lend, as lender of last resort, printing money when we need to, or do we try something else where we try to manipulate people's, uh, not just uh, people, the public, but also businesses, banks, and all sorts of financial institutions. We try to manipulate their sentiment and their emotions to make them believe things that we want them to believe. And therefore that should create the economic and financial outcomes that we think that we're trying to create. And that's really what they decided to do. They said, we can't keep up with money, which meant at that point, we're no longer gonna be an actual central bank. We're gonna try something else, which is this expectations policy, which is to get people to believe that what we're doing is money printing or money constricting or anything else. And big part of that obviously is if you're going to be if you're going to try to manipulate emotions it really helps if not it's absolutely required that you have people believe that they should never ever ever question your authority right if you're going to manipulate people's psychology 
You have to do it from a place of authority. And if that authority is unquestioned, sort of like a cult leader, which is another thing Emil likes to bring up, you know, as a cult leader, you can never have anybody question your authority. And that's really where this don't fight the Fed stuff comes from. It's how do we create and then ma maintain this manipulation, this expectations policy so that it can hopefully create the outcomes that we want from it. And the only way to do that, at least the only way that uh, current monetary policy believes that can be done is if there's no questions, there's never any errors. Monetary policy is always the most powerful thing ever. It's never, it, they never make any mistakes and it's never, uh, it's never less than what, uh, what we say it's gonna be at the beginning. But it's a hard game to keep up for two decades in Japan or in the rest of the advanced economy for 15 years, right? You can juggle those spinning plates if everything goes back to the way it was and the economy is growing, the bank-centered money is being created. So you can keep that going, seemingly, until you hit one of these moments that are very, very rare, which I like to think of as a, a true worldwide economic depression. And in those kind of periods, which last a decade or more, then people start asking questions. Why isn't it working after a period, period of time? Exactly right. The only reason that the expectations policy got entrenched in the first place was because the monetary system, the Eurodollar system from the 1950s forward, created this wave of money creation outside of the Federal Reserve's control that people like Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke were only too willing to take credit for and say, oh, monetary policy has evolved. This expectations policy has matured and become to a place where it can now create these predictable outcomes in the economy through the Federal Reserve doing nothing more than raising or lowering the federal funds rate a quarter point here or there. That's really, when you stand back and mm -hmm. listen to yourself say that, that's how ridiculous it is. But once the monetary system broke down, and this was August of 2007, suddenly the Fed and its expectations policy didn't perform so well. And Emil's right, now it's okay, we're starting to get the sense that something's missing here. And by, by, me, by, me, by saying we, I mean most of the general public. It's been slowly and incrementally over time. But I think nowadays people view QE very differently than they may have viewed the first one, which was unquestioned, unchallengeable money printing. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be huge. It's going to be terrific. And nowadays it's like, QE, really? Another one? What is, what, is this going to do what it didn't do last time? So there's this growing sense just in the general public that, there's something that's off here. And then inside these institutions, you see more academic scholarship being devoted to alternate theories, like does this expectations policy really work? There's more studies and more interest in collateral and secured financing transactions and things like that. They're starting to get the sense that this smoke and mirrors manipulation of psychology probably isn't enough to maintain itself too much longer because the outcomes are not what's supposed to happen. We're not, we don't see inflation. We don't see economic growth. We don't see any of these other things that's supposed to come along with quantitative easing. And we haven't seen them for 20 years when you use the Japanese case. So maybe we need to start answering some questions for ourselves before we start getting really challenged in the public, in the public square. Yeah. So, you know, listening to you guys talk, Warren Buffett has this great definition of a bubble, right? And it's something like, it's a good idea carried to excess. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the idea. Um, and, you know, if you look back recently in, you know, the, the great financial crisis, that was uh, buying real estate is always a good idea. Good idea. It had been a good idea for a long period of time. It got carried to excess, uh, and we all saw what happened there. Uh, you could arguably say they were probably watching the inflation of a large bubble in uh, passive investing. It's a good idea, right? Like, you don't want to pay huge asset management fees. So, you know, passive vehicles, they probably got a little bigger than we thought. What might be even more dangerous, though, is is if the idea that you are basing the bubble on isn't even true, right? That idea of don't fight the Fed and the central, the supremacy of central banks is so baked into markets. And what I'm hearing you guys say is that's not even true. <laughs> it wasn't even a good idea to begin with. Somehow we all just started believing this. So let's answer that question. So what if what, is, what are the implications here, right? What if this belief structure suddenly starts to unwind? What would the impact that we, what would the ripple effects of that essentially be? Jeff, I hate to be philosophical here, but I think it's okay, or at least it can continue for a very long time to base uh, a belief on something that might not be true or tangible. Uh, look at money itself. It was being created out of thin air by by these banks offshore off balance sheet off the regulatory radar for decades and what sustained it confidence confidence so if if you have confidence in something even if it might not be 
true. I think it could go on for a very long time. You know, going back to what you said originally, Michael, that's, it wasn't so much that, the, you know, buying land was a good idea. That was part of it. The other part of it was these banks saying, we can create as much money as we want. We can create as much credit as, he want, as we want, and there's no downside. Right. It's really the, the other part of it, you know, at the, in, in the early years, that was true. There was no downside to creating all this money. So, you know, maybe there was something to it. But eventually, these asset bubbles transform into rationalizations, which whether or not the original premise is true almost doesn't matter. At some mm -hmm. point, it becomes just common, commonly accepted that this is the way the world is. And then, of course, you've got confirmation bias and recency bias, which says, which says that obviously we must be correct, because if we were wrong, we would have been proven wrong before now. And that's what Emil is saying, that these things can go on for a very long time. So essentially this, you know, don't fight the Fed. The central bank is the most powerful instrument in human, human, in, in humankind. Um, that is a rationalization. And it's a rationalization that is hardened and baked into the system in many different ways. One of the most, you know, insidious ways is through the financial services industry itself. You said, you know, Michael, you, you mentioned passive investment, just active investments mm. too. You know, fund managers and portfolio managers love the Fed. They love the myth of don't fight the Fed because it allows them the predictable cover to say, we're going to buy stocks. We, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if the, it looks uh, like the world's falling apart. Jay Powell's got our back. We're going to buy shares. We're going to buy risky assets because they, the Fed prints money, right? So, I mean, that's what happens. And if everybody believes that, then it becomes one of these rationalizations that can definitely support and underpin financial markets in, in particular for a very long time. Now, in the real economy, it's a different story. The real economy doesn't run on such kind of fantasies because there has to be some form of final settlement. And so maybe that's really the terminal point is where where is it that financial markets that are up in the air detached from reality, where are they demanded, where is final settlement demanded on those markets? And we saw a little bit of that last March when liquidity just, just got sucked out of the entire system through the collateral chains collapsing. And of course, even then, unpenetrable before, stock markets tanked around the world too. So there is definitely a liquidity component to the stock market, even though as, as, as it, uh, outside of those, those periods, it continues to go upward forever. There does seem to be a point where reality does get imposed. Now, that doesn't mean it gets imposed like March 2020 or you know September and October 2008, where it gets imposed all at once. But there are limits to rationalizations, as we've seen throughout history. And even this one, which might be the most you know, perfect per public relations or psychological op or psychological operation has ever been conducted. I mean, you got you to tip your hat to central banks, at least in that, these non-central banks, central banks, they've convinced the world they are something they are not. And it's going to take a long, long time for that to be, you know, to deprogram the public into what's really the case. And I want to ask you guys a question. Like if you were, let's just say hypothetically, right? Uh, we said maybe we were ending on, on the latter half of this belief cycle that uh, central banks are kind of all-powerful. Let's say there are cracks forming in the uh, financial firmament, so to speak. What would those cracks kind of look like? Because I have a couple of things that I have kind of noticed and paying attention to, but I'd be curious, like when you guys are just looking towards robustness or frailty in financial markets in general, what are some of the things that you pay attention to? The U.S. dollar, uh, sovereign bond yields, the spread between... What swap spreads, right, Jeff? What else? I would just say in general, you know, you mentioned a couple of those already. I mean, money curves, yield curves, things mm. like that. They're not just saying there's cracks in the foundation of central banks and this psychological manipulation. They're outright, they're outright laughing at central banks. They're outright disagreeing. Don't fight the Fed. The bond market is absolutely betting against the Fed. Even now, we're interested... You know, you hear all these stories lately. Oh, it's the worst year for bonds in history. Or it's the worst year for bonds in a long time. Bull. <laughs> I mean, interest rates are still, if, if interest, the interest rate on the 10-year today was before 2020, it would be the lowest in history, or at least near the lowest in history. It's the bond market saying, yes, there are these perturbations in, in uh, the way the economy and financial flows go that once in a while things don't look so bad. But overall, bond markets and bond yields since 2000, 2008 have been saying, we're not just fighting the Fed, we're actively betting against this entire monetary paradigm because we know it's completely false and wrong. Mm -hmm. 
So you, from that, when you detach yourself from the idea that central banks are central, that they are actually central banks, and you start looking at financial markets from this perspective, you can see they're not just cracks in the system. They're the system basically rejecting outright that very idea. And of course, that's contrary to the idea that you're, you're fed in the mainstream. It's contrary to the idea that's being priced into the stock market. So there's all sorts of all manner of confusion about how we're supposed to interpret all these things. But on the, when you get down to the basic fundamental cases, these fundamental monetary financial broad markets are basically saying it's it's all a lie. It's all a lie. Not only is it all a lie because interest rates are so low and because interest rates are discounting the future, we don't expect this lie to be revealed or to be changed anytime soon. Um, and this this actually idea comes from two people that I've had on the show before. Uh, one, Pippa Malmgren, and two, uh, Greg Foss. Um, and, and the point was basically that, you know, there's another expression that gets bandied around in financial markets is that the bond market is the single source of truth, right? It's the ultimate source of truth. Um, and uh, Pippa kind of made the point um, on an episode we recorded a couple months ago that actually all the tampering uh, that the central banks do with the bond market has actually ceased. Um, it is diluted the signal that investors get uh, from the bond market. And Greg's point, uh, and uh, Jeff, you look like you're ready to disagree with me, but uh, I'll just get my point out and then you can tell me why I'm wrong, is um, uh, basically the same point. And actually, if you look towards uh, markets for credit default swaps, so CDS markets, that's actually a much more reliable indicator of, let's say, the creditworthiness uh, and solvency of nations, uh, right? And he kind of pointed to Canada in particular. So what would you say, I guess, to that pushback or alternative viewpoint? And as far as the idea that central banks have manipulated bond markets to the point they're useless or they've diluted their signal, I just have to laugh because not even central banks actually believe that. Study after study after study. You don't need the studies. Just look at a chart. Look at a chart of interest rates. When central banks buy, are actively buying bonds, interest rates typically behave in the opposite way they're supposed mm. to. The most famous and most perfect example is 2013. The taper tantrum, or as Emil just called it, the taper celebration, which is what people should refer to it as. Because during 2013, interest rates rose rapidly, not because the bond market was upset the Fed was going to stop buying bonds, because for a brief period of a couple months, the bond market actually agreed with the reason the Fed was tapering to begin mm -hmm. with. The bond market said, yes, maybe it looks like there's going to be a little bit more growth in inflation, so interest rates need to go higher. But it didn't last. When the Fed finally got around to actually tapering bonds in December of 2013, guess what happened? The prices of bonds didn't fall because the Fed was no longer buying them. The prices of bonds went up because the bond market rejected the thesis behind taper to begin mm. with. The interest rates have not been diluted by the Fed signal. The interest rates have, most, more often than not, they have contradicted what the Federal Reserve is doing. And people who don't like the bond markets, uh, the bond markets view of the world and the economy are the ones who are saying, oh, we can't trust bonds because it must be diluted by central banks anyway. So let's look at stocks. Let's look at something else. That's really what's going on here. It's a transparent attempt to, to undercut the argument of the one truth in the, in the, in the global monetary system. As, Emil, as you've said many times, the bond market is the monetary system itself telling you what it's doing. So it's not like we're, we're getting second or third hand uh, uh, observations. We're getting as close as we possibly can to the truth, or at least what's really going on. And the bond market is saying this central bank mythology is really just nothing more than mythology. And again, you don't have to take our word for it. Look up any kind of uh, QE study, quantitative easing study. Just get out a chart of interest rates in Europe, in the United States, Japan. Look at the way bond yields actually behave, and you'll be surprised to learn they don't react much at all to central bank bond buying, which means their interest rates are being set by other factors beyond monetary policies. We did a couple of episodes on this, and in one of the episodes, we went year by year uh, through the United States uh, Treasury yield curve compared to when Q was, QE was announced or about to be announced. And to Jeff's point, we saw the bond market doing the opposite of what you would think it should be doing if the central bank was in charge. And then another episode we did was uh, reviewing a study that was put out from New Zealand, which I think itself was a, a collection of different studies on QE, because after all, it's Yeah, been, it was like a meta study. That, that's right. I think they looked at 40, that number's in my head, 40 different studies on QE, some huge number, 20 to 40, whatever it was, where they they wanted to see what is the effect of QE on interest rates. And they found that the median result was uh, half a percentage point if you spend 10% of GDP. 
so if you go yes all in all in basically an insane amount which is basically the yeah these studies are basically saying the market sets interest rates not quantitative easing and it really it's it's the people who say that quantitative easing and central banks have diluted the interest rate signal again they're just making a lazy argument that they have not obviously looked at the results trying to discount what bonds are saying because bonds are telling them something they don't want to hear and it's not like jeff and i only discuss the bond markets we discuss euro dollar futures I'm not aware of quantitative easing affecting euro dollar futures. I don't know if central banks are buying euro dollar futures right now. What about currencies in the US dollar? Are they are they diluting those signals? So there's multiple signals that we take a look at. Bonds, euro dollar futures, the do- yeah. yeah. It's a comprehensive consistent fixed income global marketplace. So, you know, when Emil I use the term bond market, we're not talking about just sovereign bonds like US treasuries. We're talking about a whole rash of you know, fixed income derivative instruments that are, you know, not in the small little niche things either. We're talking about, you know, Euro dollar futures is maybe most people haven't heard of them, but it's probably outside of the treasury market, the second largest, deepest, most sophisticated market in human existence. So there's, there's all of these signals that consistently tell us at the same time that reinforce the message bond markets are talking about reality in the economy and the monetary marketplace and and, uh, looking forward and discounting what the perception or at least the common perception is of those things uh, over the future. And they're not, they're not inflation. They're not growth. They're not really good. They're not the Fed is uh, all powerful central bank. And in fact, low interest rates are the exact opposite, the interest rate fallacy. They're telling you the Fed does not print money. There is not inflation in the economy because there isn't really money flowing through the economy. And they would know because they're the ones who create the money or don't create the money. Michael, I don't know if you Mm -hmm. caught that, but Jeff just said there's not inflation in the economy. Surely you've got to follow up with him because your audience is saying, what a crazy guy. What's he talking about? So you don't think that we're viewing inflation in the economy today? Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, people think I'm crazy, I guess. And I think I'm actually the the, the only sane one around nowadays. Textbook inflation, and I'm going to use Emile's term here, monetary inflation, which to me is redundant. But monetary inflation means that there's too much money chasing too few goods. Therefore, the price of all goods need to go up. And they go up not just for a couple months, but they go up time and time again. They're relentless. Mm. Uh, Think about the 1970s great inflation. That was excessive monetary creation that went on for a long, long period. That's inflation. So it's not just the price of food or the price of used cars go up for a couple months. It's the price of everything that goes up constantly, month after month after month, year after year after year. So when I look at what happens, what has happened so far this year, it's not inflation. Yes, consumer prices went up, but they went up for reasons that have nothing to do with the monetary system. And so if there isn't the monetary system, the monetary growth there, it can't be inflation. Therefore, it's not going to continue because inflation, again, as Milton Friedman said, is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So if there isn't the money, there isn't the inflation. Yes, consumer prices went up, but as I said, if, if we're eliminating the monetary explanation, they must have gone up for some other reasons, which are no mystery. And if they went up for some other reasons than money, they're not going to go up and stay. They're not going to accelerate for uh, forward for a long period of time. They're going to come back down to earth. Jeff, what are those other reasons? They're a mystery to me. I don't know. I don't watch your show. <laughs> uh, the federal government deposited massive amounts of, of, of cash into uh, just anybody's uh, bank account, and that created a buying frenzy in the United States, as well as you know some real logistical nightmares in terms of moving goods around the world. Not moving a lot of goods. We're having trouble moving lesser amounts of goods than we moved around a couple of years ago. Now, in the United States, it's a little bit different because there has been a lot of good, a lot more goods, but around the rest of the world, these supply bottlenecks have create have been created based on just. A lot of non-monetary, non-economic factors, political, uh, political interference, COVID pandemic restrictions, labor restrictions, all sorts of these other things that have combined to, to create earlier this year a real spike in consumer prices. But it was not inflation. It was just a spike in consumer prices that, by the way, that does happen fairly regularly. It's not like this is the first time this has ever happened. We only need to go back to 2008 to see something similar. Mm. And nobody today convinces 2008 with an inflationary uh, background or condition because it was obviously deflationary because, again, inflation is a monetary component. 
I've got to, I've got two follow-ups. I've got two big follow-ups here because you said two things. You said the inflation thing. You also said the word interest rate fallacy. And I, I want to follow up on that one first because just in case anyone has somehow made it through this podcast thinking that central banks are still in control, I want to bring up the last bastion, right? So feds control interest rate at the short end of the curve. They set the fed funds rate, right? And actually, not only do they might, might that not be as effective as you think as controlling the entire curve, right? But they might actually have that whole policy backwards. You use the word interest rate fallacy, Jeff. Walk us through what that is and what the implications are for markets in general. Again, you don't need to take my word for this. All you need to do is get out a historical chart of interest rates. What Milton Friedman said all the way back in the 1960s, and then he reiterated again in the 1990s, was that when you see interest rates low, the common, the common perception is that low interest rates are stimulus. That's what we're told. When, when interest rates go down, that means it's cheaper for borrowers. Therefore, it should be stimulative, stimulative to the real economy because more people can afford to borrow and do economic things. That's what, we're, that's what we're taught. That's what's reinforced in the financial media. But historically speaking, as Friedman pointed out, it's the exact opposite. The Great Depression in the 1930s, nobody would, nobody would confuse the Great Depression with an inflationary period, right? The Great Depression is obviously deflationary, and it was for a prolonged period of time. Well, interest rates went lower and lower and lower, not higher and higher and higher. Now, they went high in specific periods, but overall, by the end of the Great Depression, interest rates were substantially lower, especially on safe and liquid instruments. Interest rates were substantially lower than where they started. Conversely, in the 1970s, the Great Inflation, what were interest rates and bond yields doing during the 60s and 70s? They were rising and rising and rising and rising. So high interest rates are not a sign of tight money. High interest rates, especially longer term bond yields, are a sign of loose money in the real economy. It's the interest rate fallacy. And as Milton Friedman said in the 1960s, experience runs exactly contrary to what, we're, what all academic economists and central bankers take for granted. So we're taught that low interest rates are stimulus, that's money, that's monetary policy being effective, hmm. when it's actually the opposite. It's monetary policy not working at all. And if interest rates go low and stay low, that is consistent with the 1930s, a period of deflationary tight money, rather than what we're all supposed to believe is effective money printing, quantitative easing, whatever. And I would like to think of it as that we're talking about the medium to long term, months, quarters, and years, right? If interest rates were lowered and the economy was booming and the cost of money is less, all right, yeah, that's that's stimulative because mm -hmm. the economy is booming. Money is cheaper. But we're talking about quarters and years, persistently low rates. That's what signals to us that there's a problem. And the problem is that people, are market participants, are sending their money instead of into the real economy, into the safest, most liquid assets which further lowers yields. That's the message. This persistent, multi-quarter, multi-year, low-rate environment, as opposed to maybe just what you would think of when you go to the grocery store and they lowered the price. All right, well, then it seems stimulative. But only in that moment, if no one's buying and they keep lowering the price just to encourage some sort of activity, that's a warning. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a custody customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, Everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip, auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at the bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. 
I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it for my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software that syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned, I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Aave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. Something that helps me think through some of these things, just from a pure logical standpoint, all data point, whatever aside, put yourself in the position of someone who's going to issue a loan and someone who's going to, who wants to borrow debt, right? So it's easier for me to put myself in the shoes of someone who might borrow debt, right? Because I'm an entrepreneur and I kind of think, okay, there are all these things I could do at BlockWorks. Like, what could I do, right? How much would it cost? And then what's my expected return, right? On whatever I'm putting that money into. And if my expected return is like 100%. I'm not really going to haggle over like 3% versus 5%, whatever. It's all gravy, right? It doesn't really matter. So to me, when I see persistent low interest rates, what that says to me is like people aren't really positive that they can get a return on their money, right? From the borrower standpoint. And when I look out from the bank, you know, what if I put myself in the shoes of a banker who's going to make these loans, you know, I would kind of just be thinking, man, everything seems freaking nuts right now. I don't want to make risky loans. Like, okay, yeah, the nominal value of stocks are all up, but Jesus Christ, do I think this is like a safe environment? Absolutely not. So it makes sense that there'd be a premium on those safe, super liquid assets, as you pointed out, Jeff. That's the way I kind of think through it in my head. Um, I don't know if you guys agree that's, with that. No, that's, that's, the, that's the most important part of the interest rate fallacy. And it's the part we never talk about because the interest rate fallacy is about, all about interest rates you can right. see and observe. They're usually liquid, liquid traded markets for these instruments. What you just said is, the, is exactly right. What you don't see is that banks don't want to lend to mom and pop because they look at mom and pop and look at the economic climate and think I'd be stupid at any interest rate to lend to these people. I could charge these people 40% interest and it still would be mm -hmm. a bad idea. So the, what you don't see is that credit and money and uh, redistribution through intermediation just dries up mm -hmm. in the shadows. We see the U.S. government can borrow at any price or any interest rate it wants. It can basically name its price. Uh, Apple, Google, uh, you know, IBM, they can borrow whatever they at, at any price they want. But in the in the rest of the economy, small and medium sized businesses in particular, they got nothing. They got absolutely nothing. And you're right. From the perspective of credit and money supply and redistribution and intermediation, creators of, lend, of loans and credit are saying we don't want anything to do with that risky stuff because obviously it's not even worth it. Even if it's, even if mom and pop are willing to pay an exorbitant interest rate, we're still not going to lend to them because we just don't think it's worth it. And that's the flip side of all this. What does that say right. about the economy and the environment that we must be operating in? It can't be very good. And, and I'm very happy that we haven't mentioned the pandemic once. But I'm going to man mention it because people may be watching the show and they may be saying, yeah, I get it because of the pandemic and the ec economic shutdown. No, that is just the fourth episode of one of a series of episodes that's been in place for 14 years. One crisis after another, one monetary shortage after another, global or regional. This is the most recent event in a series of them. And... And that's the problem why banks are, are, they're not scared of just the pandemic. If it was just the pandemic, they would come right out because the pandemic is over, I guess. I don't know where we are with that, but it's over. They would come out and start lending if the economy was rip roaring. This has been 14, 15 years of having uh, their nose beaten, you know, with a rolled up newspaper. No, bad idea, bad idea, bad idea. Eventually they learn, don't do it.
And Emil, this is, uh, we're just getting to the first question. You know, it's a good interview when I'm literally just getting to the first question that I initially wanted to ask you. Um, but I know you've talked about kind of a lack of structural growth since 2008. So are we answering that question for why that's the case, right? There's kind of this question, it's called the great stagnation. Why aren't we seeing the structural growth that we think we should be if the economy is actually rip-roaring along? Where's all the growth? I guess one explanation could be the interest rate fallacy. Low interest rates actually aren't as stimulative to real structural growth as we all think. But what do you guys think? Anything else that we're missing? Do you agree with that sentiment? Like, where where's the growth, I suppose, is the question for you. Well, Jeff, uh, I don't know what you think of this, but I think the most the most tangible answer is that there's no longer enough money for us to grow at the rate that we're used to. Why isn't there enough money? I would say it's because we've reached the end of our era, the post-World War II order, the end of the post-Cold War globalization. And it's unclear what the new era, the new order will look like, the new social contract that's ahead of us. And these things happen somewhat regularly for anyone who's read The Fourth Turning or any number of works on this matter. Basically, there's an established order that's set up a long time ago, and it works. It makes sense because it was set up at that time. But enough time passes, several generations, and people start looking around and wondering, why, what, why are we doing things this way? I don't believe people believe in the present. They don't believe in the future. There is no future because it hasn't mm. been defined yet. There hasn't been a, a new social contract between government, business, households, and the wealthy about what the lay of the land will be like on the other side of this long emergency. And so I think that's the underlying cause behind, behind why we're in, the, in this rut. Jeff, what do you think of that idea? My answer would be far less abstract. I mean, not that I don't like your answer, Emil, because I think you have to you have to have that kind of a long term theological, almost theological discussion about where we're going. But in a less less abstract way, it's just what we said. The banking system is supposed to perform two functions under the euro dollar framework, which is credit creation, which is really money creation, along with intermediation, which is essentially matching the demand for money with the supply for money. And that's intermediation redistribution. And that's something that the euro dollar system actually did pretty well, if not too well. Eventually, over time, like everything else, as you mentioned, Warren Buffett saying a good idea that ends up becoming a bad idea. That's really what happened. The good idea became a bad idea, and the intermediation function sort of took a backseat to the money creation function, which is what, how we ended up with subprime mortgages and that kind of a mess. On the flip side of the financial crisis, which was really nothing more than a dollar shortage, the banks have gone in the exact opposite direction. As we just said, they're no longer willing to lend to mom and pop because of all the reasons, you know, there's no reason, it's, it's, there's no liquidity to lending to mom and pop and liquidity risk is paramount and all these other things. But what that means economically is that we're not matching the most efficient way, in the most efficient way, we're not matching money supply with money demand. Mm -hmm. And the economic growth absolutely depends upon this, this, this uh, efficiency and intermediation that redistributes monetary resources throughout a broad base of the global economic marketplace. So that with the intermediation function broken down because of the lack of liquidity, because of lack of money, the impaired money creation function, it is essentially depriving the entire global economic marketplace of the monetary and credit resources to grow in the same way or to at least, you know, even behave and act in the same ways it had before. And anytime you deprive any, you know, it's like depriving an animal of oxygen, you know, they don't necessarily die right away. But if they're deprived of enough oxygen, they will become slow and lethargic and they won't act mm. as aggressively as they used to. And modern modern economies absolutely require uh, sufficient levels of intermediation, sufficient levels of monetary growth in order to seed and to expand and to grease the wheels of commerce, to borrow a 19th century ex expression. Um, you have to have the monetary growth and it has to be redistributed. We have to match efficiently supply of money with demand for money in order for the economy to do, to grow in the most efficient and sustainable fashion possible. And without that happening, without with the intermediation function impaired because of the liquidity function, it's a drag. It's a ceiling on economic growth. Yes, GDP is going up and it's at record levels, but it is clearly not going up in the same way as it had before 2008. We're left with a shortfall in economic growth and economic activity that is creating now all sorts, as Emil was talking about, we need to start thinking ahead into a, basically a new way of doing things because this old way has, has run its course and it's, it's preventing us from 
there's no way to go back to the pre-crisis uh, pre-crisis way of doing things. So we almost have to start from scratch and moving forward. And because the economy is growing, even if we have a population of whatever number of billions it is right now, I understand that it's supposed to be peaking. We're not going to have as many people at the end of this century as we do uh, whenever it is that we peak. But I think the economy is still supposed to be growing, expanding, carrying humanity higher. And with that, that means there needs to be more tools, more money. So yes, we would think, okay, there shouldn't be more corn, right? And so there shouldn't be more money because there's fewer people. But I think of it that if the economy is on an exponential path over a long term and humanity evolves and advances, then we need likewise money to grow at a certain rate. What is that rate? I don't know. Uh, Walter Badgett said it's dynamic, right? Yeah, it's, it's not, yeah, yeah, there is yeah. no single rate that lasts through time. And that's really why we, we want a dynamic marketplace for money, because matching supply and demand for money is not going to be mm. the same today mm -hmm. as it was 15 years ago, nor will it be 15 years mm -hmm. from now. And you, Emil and I do not agree with the Marxists that capitalism has a termination point and that, that you know, there will not be exponential growth forever, that we're, we're going to hit some kind of plateau. No, we think that this is, as I, what do you call it, Emil, a cul-de-sac. We have these repeated cultures. The Great Depression is a perfect example. And what did the, what created the Great Depression? It was a tool shortfall. It was a monetary shortfall. We didn't have enough tools in the economy to allow the economy to get back onto its footing. And once we solved that problem in the post-war post era, economic growth didn't just magically return. That's just the way the modern industrial society operates. So we do believe that economic growth is absent today for these reasons. But that doesn't mean it's going to be absent forever. We just need to change the way we do these things so that we can get back to doing what human beings do, which is innovate and explore and do all these wonderful, uh, wonderful things, including, I mean, crypto and digital currencies, which are another, another really fascinating innovation in, along these lines too, which, you know, the secret to all of capitalist, uh, pro, uh, capitalist advance has always been that kind of productivity. And that's really what Emil was saying. You know, even if we don't have the same population advance, although I'm not convinced, you should never extrapolate in a straight line. You know, learning from uh, watching economists always extrapolate in a straight line. We could we could go through another baby boom yeah. up in, in the recent years once we fix the economy. Once we get economic, legitimate economic growth back onto the table, you never know, we could experience another baby boom. But even if we don't, the secret to advance is always productivity. And productivity requires a fair amount of matching, a dynamic matching between money supply and money demand. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, dialogue in our country right now about inequality. I tend to bring everything back to inequality. And uh, I've started to kind of chart out how do we solve that? Like, what is the bull case for the common man, the blue collar worker, right? And when you hear the, in the current paradigm, Right. You have uh, financial assets appreciating, uh, you know, the divide between the one percent and everyone else getting larger and larger. So we know that's not going to work. Right. But inflation at the same time, you know, all these people who kind of warn about inflation all the time, they're like, well, prices outstrip, uh, you know, wages and therefore it's not good for the common man either. And that's just kind of got me thinking, well, what is good? You know what? Like literally, what does an ideal scenario look like coming out of this? I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Economic growth. Question? Inequality is nothing more than we've been deprived of economic growth. And who gets deprived when we're deprived of economic growth? It's the mm. bottom layers. Mm. So when the economy isn't growing, the rich people don't suffer. The 1% don't suffer. In fact, they've actually do relatively well. It's, it's everybody else who suffers when the lack of economic growth. As John Maynard Keynes said over a century ago, deflation is by far the worst monetary evil because it hits the labor market. It mm -hmm. robs not just workers of their opportunity to work, it robs them of any sorts, any sense of wage growth. It's any kind of opportunity in a real economic sense in terms of trading their labor for some kind of money. It's not really about the money itself, it's about the lack of economic exchange. And as we said before, if there's not enough tools, if there's not enough money in the real economy that's depriving the economy of growth, we suffer, the regular, regular folks suffer for it, not rich people. Right. So the answer is, if we fix the monetary problem, we get back to a, a real economic boom, 
inequality should be not necessarily erased because in a capitalist system, it's never going to be completely erased, but it should come back to a more reasonable level where people start saying, stop paying attention to stock markets and start paying attention to job markets and say, I don't care about stocks. Look at all the, the really good paying jobs that are available for me. I can go almost anywhere I want because this economy is actually booming. It's not leaving people behind. It's bringing all those millions of people who've been left behind for the last 15 years, bringing them back into it. And what started as a monetary problem in 2007, because it wasn't fixed, transformed into a political one. I dated to uh, the summer of 2014 with the elections for the European uh, Parliament, or I forgot what its actual name is, when the first uh, outsiders and radicals were elected in a shocking numbers. And ever since then, we've had more and more outsiders being put into or near power by people who are looking for answers. It's not right or left. They'll go to the left, they'll go to the right. They're looking for someone outside the system, non-traditional, to try to bring that focus back on jobs, on real people. And uh, at the end of 2019, there were worldwide protests, worldwide. Uh, and then we had it interrupted because of the pandemic. So mm. I think once again, it's going to come back not to what's happening in the monetary sphere. That has been a loss. The economic recovery, I don't think is going to happen because they've tried for 14 years. It's got to be a political solution, which is dangerous, of course, because we may overreach. We may damage the institutions that uh, make our societies liberal and, you know, in the small liberal case, uh, and democratic and free. So it, it's a dangerous time, but the solution will be a political one, not a not a monetary economic one. Hmm. So with that transition, the dismantling and creation of new institutions, I want to transition to our last uh, topic of conversation, which is cryptocurrencies, crypto assets. I want to start, first start by asking you about uh, Bitcoin. Um, and then I actually want to ask you about your thoughts on the rest of uh, crypto assets DeFi, uh, some of the other further out things. Um, and I think they actually weren't separate conversations and I'll kind of explain why. Um, I, you know, I said before, maybe I'll, I can clarify, I consider myself a Bitcoiner, but I do have some problems with the idea of sound money in general. And I'll literally trace my entire thought process to get to where I am right now. I found out about Bitcoin before I understood what central banking was. So I find out about Bitcoin. Then it's like, why does Bitcoin exist? Oh, because we have these things called central banks and they're just allowed to I know this is wrong, but print as much money as they want. That sounds absolutely nuts. Yeah, it makes 100% sense that we should have just a finite supply. And then you kind of look at the history of sound money. You're like, wait, this existed with the gold standard, and it didn't really work back then. So why should it work any better now? That's where I currently am. I have a huge amount of faith and conviction in this asset. I believe in it. I have a big personal stake. I own a bunch of it. Disclaimer. But that's where I am. So illuminate me. Talk to me about your thoughts on Bitcoin in general. Are you a supporter? Do you see the same limitations that I do? What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, Michael, I think you're exactly right. Uh, I don't, I don't, like, I, I wouldn't call it it's sound money. It's basically fixed money. Mm. And fixed money, as you pointed out, through, historically speaking, hasn't really worked out all that well at all, which is really the reason why we are the way we are. That's why central banks were instituted to begin with. Again, dynamic system, dynamic monetary needs, matching supply and demand. A fixed money system doesn't really work all that well because human, you know, money tends to pool and tends to be hoarded and it tends to be pooled and hoarded at the worst possible moments, which exacerbates all of these depressionary issues that we've, that historically speaking, plagued mankind in the modern industrial age. So I'm with you in that respect, in that, that respect. And believe me, I come from a sound money background too, where I believe more sound money than willy nilly fiat currency, but yet you can't get past that historical problem, which is, you know, fixed monetary systems don't tend to work very well either. In fact, they tend to create some of the worst economic cases. And so you really have to st step back and think, well, there is really something to this elasticity issue. And there's really a reason that that, that becomes that becomes paramount at, in certain times because money itself is subjected to, you know, human foibles. We have to we have to you have to have this passionate, honest analysis when we think not just historically speaking, but looking forward and say, as much as we like the gold standard, like a lot about the gold standard, we can't romanticize uh, history because there were all of these mistakes embedded within it and all these flaws inherent within it. So while there's a lot to be said about price, price stability and a lot of, to be said, a lot to be gained from some kind of monetary system that is more inclined toward price stability, 
We don't necessarily want to go completely in that direction to a fixed monetary system because, it, again, historically speaking, that, that doesn't lead to a lot of good outcomes either. And that's really, when you look at Bitcoin, and you know, that's, it's hard-coded into the asset where there is a fixed finite amount of Bitcoins available. That would, that's really kind of concerning, as is the fact that most Bitcoins are concentrated in a very few hands. I mean, Bitcoin itself is essentially proving our point, which is money tends to pool and it tends to lump, it be, tends to be lumpy. And as, as long as Bitcoin behaves like that, I don't see it as essentially a realistic alternative to the, the current system, which badly needs to be redrawn. And you're right, because this current euro dollar system has opened the door to cryptocurrencies, which is basically saying this system doesn't work. So let's let somebody else try to solve it. And Bitcoin was sort of the first one that came through the door and said, well, let's try to do it this way. And so if we separate, you know, the, the idea of fixed money behind Bitcoin with essentially the technology and the idea, the, the general idea behind digital cryptocurrency, those are two, two very different things. Hmm. Now, I, I to transition into kind of the rest of crypto, I think my working uh, framework right now is that if you do look through history, maybe the answer is that it's not fully one way or the other, right? A fully fiat system with nothing anchoring the value of money right. doesn't work. A fully sound money, fixed cap money supply doesn't work. You probably need right. some mix of both. And my, like, I'll just say my personal framework right now is that I think Bitcoin probably wins that use case uh, for me. If you do look historically, even in our current system, fiat money is kind of tied to the value of oil, right? In like some way, right? There's the petrodollar system and all that kind of stuff. Um, Jeff shaking his head. Okay, cool. Why do I even say things with Jeff? But, uh, but you know, there's t traditionally been sort of some tie to a commodity or something that anchors it, hopefully, within the realm of reality. Uh, and I do think that Bitcoin has a good chance of winning that use case in general. Um, look, I, one thing I've changed my mind on, I used to be like, oh, gold and Bitcoin, I think they can coexist. I think Bitcoin eats gold now. I, I'm changing my mind on that because the one thing I think you need to understand is we're talking a lot about belief, right, and the power of a narrative. And guess what? It hasn't happened yet, but young kids aren't going to buy gold. You know, it might take no. 60 years, no. but they're just not going to do it, man. No, um, they're not. Yeah. Nor should they. We, if you're not willing to go back all the way to an actual classical gold standard where we're all walking around with gold coins in our pocket, actually silver coins. But if we're not willing to walk around with precious metal coins in our pocket, then what's the point? And we're not. You're right. No, no young kid. No, I don't want to walk around with you know, silver coins in my I want to tap my phone on the, on, the, on the cashier register and that's the end of it. But look, what we need to do when you look at digital currency is separate the functions of money. And you also need to separate the three pillars of reserve currency. And right. You have to understand, are digital assets actually taking on these fundamental roles of money? Are they actually meeting these fundamental pillars of a reserve currency? And the answer are they're not. Mm. And there's, that's, not, that's not unexpected or that's not even, not, you know, it's not like we can't understand why. It's because this is an innovative new technology that's kind of groping its way forward. And when I say, you know, meeting the, uh, the monetary roles of the reserve currency roles, we're talking about medium of exchange, unit of account, and um, store of value. Now, Bitcoin right now is trying to be more of a store of value than it is a medium of exchange. Now, it's trying to become a medium of exchange and thereby be create itself as a unit of account. But again, it's not widely used. It's not widely held. And so it's going to struggle as a medium of exchange for a long time which doesn't necessarily mean it can't be a useful store of account or store of value, but that's only one small function amongst others. And then we're talking about in terms of replacing the Euro dollar, which means a global reserve currency system. It has to be able to supply liquidity. It has to be able to adjust to uh, economic circumstances and it has to have confidence. And so when you look at some of these like tether, for example, or stable coins in general, maybe not, we shouldn't probably use tether specifically, but just stable coins in general are sort of trying to attack some of these roles. Like for example, medium of exchange or liquidity across a reserve currency, like the Euro dollar is, is essentially bringing together different currency systems like Yuan and Euros. And how do they translate to each other in the same context of dollars or South African rands or Brazilian rias or something like that? You know, that's kind of what Tether is trying to do is, is create this, is this marketplace where all these various systems can talk to each other, which is what the Euro dollar does very well, but it doesn't have the, any way of, 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 of reaching the confidence pillar. Now that's where the Euro dollar essentially you know, piggybacked off the US dollar and said, we'll call ourselves US dollars and nobody will be the wiser about it. And so it, the Euro dollar standard for, for the global reserve currency was able to, to accomplish those roles 
because it had the US dollar seemingly attached to it. Whereas a digital cryptocurrency doesn't start with that sort of advantage. It has to mm. create its own confidence. And so you can see why Tether or any stablecoin is trying to basically piggyback from the existing system by, by uh, creating coins that are supposed to be one-to-one -one backed by reserves. And those reserves are essentially what exists already. So it's not really a full, legitimate, coherent uh, reserve currency or even currency system itself, but it's trying to move in the direction so it can fill more and more of these monetary roles, and not, not just Tether, but all these other digital currencies together. That's the innovation. That's the technological drive is they're trying to take these various monetary pieces, these, very, these various fundamental roles and solve them, at least try to solve them one at a time. And then over time, you hope that they sort of get pieced back together. Now, going back to what you originally said about Bitcoin, I think because Bitcoin is, a, is fixed, because it's concentrated and pooled up, I don't think it can really behave much more than a store of value, whereas some of these other digital currency technologies and, and methodologies might be more successful at combining some of these other roles like medium of exchange or in the reserve currency role. Maybe you will see something that gets into a liquidity adjustment and confidence functions that can do it very well as well as or maybe even better than the euro dollar system. So the potential is there. But right now, digital currencies, they're just kind of groping along in the dark because what else were they going to do? Hmm. They're basically starting from scratch. I feel like Bitcoin has won the money case. But for me, I think and this is probably where I diverge from some large portion of crypto. I don't actually view crypto as a primarily monetary phenomenon. Uh, and what I mean by that is like when you go back to the invention of what Satoshi did, he solved the double spend problem online, which is this like nerdy computer science problem. But in my opinion, the big no, thing. It's, it's not. It's a fundamental problem. If I have a if I have a dollar bill and I give it to you, I can't spend it again. Yeah. And so that the elegant way the blockchain solved that problem opened the door to all these other things, because it definitely now we have a legitimate currency possibility. Right. He solved the problem of scarcity online, he solved the problem that a lot of people didn't really know exists because you take it for granted, right? Like if you're in the desert uh, and you find uh, like a watering hole, you know, you don't have to be like, oh, thank God. You know, there's what you don't need to think, oh, this is scarce. But, you know, if you're in a desert and there's a thousand watering holes, each one of that is just like the value drops off very quickly. And you understand that intuitively it's baked into your very biology. Um, and so it's not as apparent that it's a big problem online that scarcity doesn't exist. Um, and I was having this debate actually with a good friend of mine the other night because Facebook is doing this whole investment in the metaverse, right? And the argument was like, well, Facebook, they could create infinite land, you know, it, it, this unbelievably huge, uh, you know, anything you could want. Uh, and he's like, you know, the crypto version of that is you're actually imposing limitations with scarcity. And my counter to him is actually scarcity is how we perceive value. That's the only thing that gives anything value at the end of the day is scarcity, in my opinion. And I think there's a monetary component to that. But look, a lot of these things that are popping up that are really interesting, they don't look like monetary networks. They look like companies to me. They look like large decentralized companies. So I wonder if hard money, scarce money is compatible with democracies, right? Hmm. Maybe hard money is acceptable in more restricted democracies where the vote is narrower. I'm thinking of the aristocracy, which has all the assets. The wealthy don't want there to be inflation. They don't want there to be loose money. But the vast majority, the government, we're mostly, we have mostly liabilities, debts. We would like to see those things eaten up. I think it may not be a coincidence that hard money fell out of favor when democracy was made its broadest, when women were given the, the right to vote in the 20th century. Hmm. Not too long thereafter, hard money wasn't seen as very palatable anymore. So I wonder if it's just not compatible with broadly democratic institutions. And since I am long gold, ergo ipso facto, that must mean that I am for dictatorships. I think that's pretty, yeah, that's... That's what I'm going for. Well, at least for. autocracies, That's my... right? Just oh, yeah. general, generalized autocracy. Some sort of monarchy that I can be a minor yeah. earl. I'm for that. And I want mm -hmm. that to be clear to your audience. Bitcoin is a wonderful solution. As many monetary inventions of the past were, it's going to be, it's going to make a difference in the future. I'm sure of it. And in a couple of generations thereafter, we're going to mess it up again. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. We're really good at that as a species. Um, 
gentlemen, this has been so much fun. Uh, if people want to find out, and I will shout out your channel. I consume, as you can tell, I quote a lot of people, I consume a lot of this content. And uh, as varied as it is and as interesting, you know, people tend to converge around the same talking points, viewpoints. I consistently get new points of view when I listen to the two of you talk about some of this stuff. So talk to me a little bit about Eurodollar University, the channel. If people want to follow you, learn more about the work that you're putting out, what is the best way to do that? They can go to YouTube or Twitter and they can search for Jeff Snyder or Emil Kalinowski or Making Sense or Eurodollar University and they'll find all of our work. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much. Uh, you, you know, I mean, I literally, I think I asked one of the questions that I sent you over uh, in preparation. So uh, we'll probably have to do this again at some point uh, in the future. Um, I want the audience to know that they were the best questions Jeff and I had ever received. So you're a great host. The audience doesn't know this, but I want them to know they were spectacular questions. We just didn't get to them. That's our fault. You'll have to forgive us. I appreciate it. And you know what? I got to give the credit to our researcher, Will Beaumont, who is excellent, man. He consistently makes me look smarter than I actually am. So thank you, Will, uh, very much. Uh, and Emil and Jeff, guys, thank you so much for doing this. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Michael. Take care.